Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, Matthew 6, and we want you to be able to look at the Bible with us as we look at God's Word this morning. So these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention. They'll get one of those to you, marked for you at Matthew 6. It's our gift to you as well. So bring it back every Lord's Day as we look at Scripture together. Very good to see folks being able to trickle back in uh, slowly after getting over most of our congregation bouts with Omicron and then also enduring the elements of January. And so as Pastor Larry mentioned, next week we will get back to our regular schedule. We've had these five Sundays in January with just our worship service. Next week, worship service time, 9.30, and then our refreshment time, and then we'll have our second hour and the Anxious for Nothing series. If at all possible, if then, you can be here with us next week, we will do uh, a couple of weeks of our State of the Church Address. That's normally the first week or two of January, but because of Omicron especially, we put that off until, until uh, next week. So I will start that next week. We'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 together about God's uh, requirements for us as part of His church to build our lives upon what He is doing through His church. And then in that message, and especially in the one to follow on the 13th, We'll be looking at some things we believe God would have us to accomplish together in the coming year and years ahead. So it's a very important time for our congregation for us to all get back on the same page, understand the direction that we're going. And so I encourage you to be with us in person, if, if at all possible. But we are thankful to have the live stream available for those who cannot. In his picturesque notes of Edinburgh, Robert Louis Stevenson wrote a series of short essays about that city in Scotland. In one, he described a couple of sisters who lived their entire adult lives together in very close quarters. But due to a disagreement, they spent their final years unwilling to even speak to each other. Now, Stevenson does not say what the precise point of conflict was, but he does say it was over a point of theology, of Christian doctrine. And therefore, it appears these women were, were churchgoers. So how many times did these women sit in church and say the disciples' prayer, which contains verse 12 of Matthew chapter 6? Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. They said those words, undoubtedly, many, many times, but they never truly prayed those words. Because had they seriously prayed them, it would have moved them to reconciliation. Years before Stevenson's observation of those two Scottish sisters, the poet Alexander Pope wrote famously, to err is human, but to forgive is divine. To forgive is considered to be beyond human ability because it does not come naturally, but rather supernaturally. A Christian author described a time in which he and his wife were having a conversation about his many shortcomings. And in the middle of the conversation, she said, I find it pretty amazing that I forgive you for some of the dastardly things that you do. Now, it was not really good for her to rub in the fact that he had so many issues. But she did have some insight about forgiveness. It's not natural. In fact, it goes against the grain of everything we feel when we're wronged. We want revenge. We want the person to pay. We want to hold on to that feeling of superiority when we have one up on someone else. And what are the 
practical consequences of a failure to forgive. Well, it's for lack of forgiveness that anger hardens into resentment and then it calcifies into bitterness and eventually explodes. It's for lack of forgiveness that husbands and wives refuse to speak or they speak harshly and angrily and eventually marriages disintegrate. It's for lack of forgiveness that that churches experience faction and splits and much grief and the name of Christ is brought into disrepute. So this morning, we are going to be reminded of Jesus' requirement that his people be forgiving people. Let's pray then and ask God to help us. Father, we do thank you that your people are able to gradually now regather after the things that you have providentially allowed to come into your world, challenges for us to be sure. But Lord, we desire to be before you and with one another, with your word open in front of us, so that we can encourage each other on toward godliness, so that we can be instructed and leave better equipped to serve you than we came. And so, Lord, we are here, many in person, some by live stream. And Lord, we ask that you would help all of us to be attentive and be desirous of the change that is necessary to conform our character to that of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Now, we provide an outline every week for you to follow along in the message. So you should have received that on the way into the auditorium. We say, first of all, that we pray to be forgiving. We pray to be forgiving. Verse 12 again, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, I say that we pray to be forgiving because verse 12 is part of Jesus' instruction on prayer. In what I call the disciples' prayer rather than the Lord's prayer, since it was given by the Lord for his followers, not for himself, and in fact, as you've heard me say, he could never pray for forgiveness since he never sinned. But in this model prayer to his first followers, Jesus gives six petitions, six requests that comprise an example of proper prayer. So the first one is, hallowed be your name. And the second request is, your kingdom come. And third, your will be done. And fourth, give us this day our daily bread. Fifth, forgive us as we forgive others. And then sixth, in verse 13, lead us not into temptation. So what we look at today in verse 12 is the fifth of six petitions in the disciples' prayer. It's a request for our own forgiveness, yes, but it's also asking the Lord to grant us a forgiving spirit as we also have forgiven our debtors. Augustine called this the terrible petition because he recognized how serious is this logic that Jesus is using here. Debts is a word for sins in this context. If we pray, forgive us our sins as we have also forgiven those who sin against us, if we do that with an unforgiving heart, we're actually asking God not to forgive us. This issue of a forgiving spirit is so important that of the six requests in this model prayer, this is the only one that Jesus chose to elaborate on. And he does so in verses 14 and 15. Verse 14. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. 
One author says, author Daniel Doriani says of the apparent but not real earned forgiveness. You read verses 14 and 15, it can sound like you earn forgiveness from God by what you do. That's apparent, but it's not, it's not real. He says this, Jesus' point is that God forgives the penitent. That is, if we understand how precious it is to be forgiven, if we know how much it costs God to forgive, then we will forgive others. The forgiven have motives to forgive. We thank God for his gift. We admire the beauty of his way, and we hope to do the same for others. The late pastor and author John Stott said, once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves we have minimized our own. So we pray to be forgiving. And we are forgiving for several reasons that I have in your outline. The first is because our Father is forgiving. The Bible says this in Ephesians chapter 4, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Now that's the last verse of Ephesians chapter 4. Immediately then, in our Bibles it goes into chapter 5, but you will remember that originally the Bible did not have chapter and verse divisions. And so Ephesians, like the other letters of your New Testament, is just a continuation. And this is kind of a, not a great division of a chapter for us because it gives the idea that what comes next is separated. In fact, they go together. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. And then the next sentence is be imitators of God. Now that word translated imitators is the word from which we get mimic. God says you are to mimic my actions in your actions. If you're really part of my family, then there needs to be a family resemblance. And how do you display that resemblance? By being kind, compassionate, forgiving each other. Be imitators of God, and this is how you do it. Now the implications of that then should be obvious. A lack of forgiveness, then, is characteristic of people not in God's family. A lack of forgiveness is characteristic of unbelievers. We'll see more about that in, in a bit. When we harbor bitterness or we seek for vengeance, we're saying that God cannot be trusted to handle His universe. We're saying, in effect, God, there's an injustice here. I've been wronged, and I'm going to do something about it, because I can't trust you to sort it out. But the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Elsewhere, the Bible laments that professing believers were taking each other to court. It says this, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? You see, the reason we can't rather be wrong, that we can't rather be cheated, that we can't let it go, is because we don't have enough trust in God to take care of it. But the truth is you can release an offense from your own hands when you know God has it in His. 
And it should be our desire to forgive because that reflects the character of our Father. So we are forgiving because our Father is forgiving. And, I say in your outline, we are forgiving because we have been forgiven. It's not an accident that the sixth petition of this model prayer, lead us not into temptation, is sandwiched between a request for forgiveness in verse 12 and then Jesus' explanation of the importance of forgiveness in verses 14 and 15. You have this prayer to be forgiven in verse 12, then the request that we not be led into temptation in verse 13, and then verse 14 begins, notice verse 14, with the word for or because, meaning they're connected. Lead us not into temptation for because. And then it goes into Jesus' explanation of the importance of forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, for because, Jesus says in verse 14, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your Father will forgive you. If you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive yours. One of the most serious sins into which we can be led, then this is saying, is refusal to forgive. It's not the only sin into which we are led. Of course, lead us not into temptation of all sorts of sin. But here's a crucial one. This issue of a willingness or lack of willingness to forgive. It's one of the most serious because it reveals so much of our character and it's so far-reaching in its impact. Refusal to forgive is the work and the desire of the devil. To err is human. To forgive is divine, that is, it's godlike, but refusal to forgive is demonic. It's diabolical. The more we recognize our own vulnerability to sin, the more forgiving we are. And this was the point of the parable that Pastor Larry read for us earlier in the service. I remind you that Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. Now, when Peter asked this, he was repeating a common teaching by the rabbis of his day that you forgive seven times, but not after that. But Jesus corrected that false teaching. I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, if you are sitting there or watching and you're doing the math, and you determine that Jesus has just raised the limit to 490, so you're going to keep track, and then when you hit 491, you will become the forgiveness Nazi. No forgiveness for you. And if you're thinking like that, you have missed the point as the rabbis did. At the end of the parable, Jesus gives the warning. In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. If we cannot forgive others, the relatively, when I say relatively, relative to our offense against God, relatively small sins they commit against us, it can only be because we have failed to receive forgiveness for the infinite debt we owed to God. Conversely, if we understand the enormous debt of sin that God in Christ has canceled for us, we will understand that the wrongs that we suffer are minuscule in comparison, and we will readily forgive. 
So the Bible says, Colossians chapter 2, he forgave us all our sins. Now on our weekly podcast yesterday, Pastor Larry and I addressed the question, how can I know that I am a Christian? And as part of that, we delved into the folly of trying to count our sins and then to atone for them somehow ourselves. I encourage you to listen or watch if you're able this week. But we noted there that our sins are too numerous for us to count, let alone atone for, since they include not only deeds, but they include words and thoughts. And they include not only deeds, words, and thoughts that we commit, but also those we omit. Things we should have done and said and thought, but we failed to. When we consider the enormous quantity of our sins, then when you read a phrase like what's on your screen now, he forgave us all our sins, all past, present, and future, it should humble us and it should move us to be forgiving. Our sins are too numerous to count, and each one is ultimately committed not first against another human, but against God. And that's why every sin requires God's forgiveness. Because even if it involves another human, it's always a violation of God's character first. So it's His forgiveness we need most and for which we should be most thankful. When we read words like we find in Romans chapter 4, quoting Psalm number 32, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. When we read that, then we realize how the enormity of our sin, too numerous to count, has been covered by our merciful God. And it is God who has done this, and therefore we are blessed infinitely and eternally. It should move us then to forgive others. We forgive because our Father is forgiving and because we have been forgiven. And we are continually forgiven because we are sinful. The necessity of Christians being forgiving people led to one of John Wesley's famous statements. Wesley was serving as a missionary to the American colonies, and he was having a difficult time with one James, General James Oglethorpe, who in 1732 was commissioned by British Parliament to establish a colony in America. He did that. He called it Georgia, named after King George. And Evangelist Wesley sought to persuade Oglethorpe of his need for the gospel, but he found him to have an especially proud and stubborn nature. And in a particularly prideful moment, Oglethorpe said, I never forgive. To which Wesley replied, then I hope, sir, you never sin. Since I am continually sinful, I must be continually forgiving. When you look in the mirror, you should see someone in need of forgiveness who is blessed to have received it from God. So that when you are face to face with someone who needs your forgiveness, you then see someone like you and you're ready to grant to them what God has given to you. How you see yourself as it relates to God will determine how you treat others as it relates to you. We forgive because our Father does, because we've been 
forgiven because the truth is we continually sin, all of us, and we're in need of it. And we are faithfully forgiving because we are truthful. Now, what I mean here is that I can forgive you and faithfully live that out with you because it's not first based on how I feel about you at any given time, but rather on promises that I make to you. Most of the misconceptions about forgiveness that we have arise because we equate it with feelings. Forgiveness is not about feeling in a forgiving mood or liking even the person that you forgive. Sometimes people say, I can't forgive, and when they say that, they're usually saying, I don't think I can feel good about this person. But when God forgives us, it's a commitment that he makes to us, and because he is truthful, he faithfully carries out what he promised to us. So the Bible says in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far he has, re he has removed has he removed our transgressions from us? Through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. This is God making a commitment to do this. It's not about how he feels. It's not about how we feel. We make a commitment. We faithfully carry it out because we, like our Father, are truthful people. Now, when it tells us, the Bible does, he remembers our sins no more, let's remind ourselves that God is incapable of forgetting. What it means is he chooses not to think about it, not to focus on it. For example, when the Bible says God remembered Noah, it does not mean that God ever forgot Noah, but rather he is focusing on Noah and the narrative of Noah's life that God has designed as described in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. And likewise, God does not forget our sins, but he does not focus on them in his relationship with those he has forgiven. And we make, as we will see, a commitment to others when we forgive. It may come to mind. I might not be able to forget it in its entirety, but I won't focus on it. When it comes to mind, I'll put it out of mind. So Peacemaker Ministries describes this process of forgiveness and the commitments we make in it this way. Through forgiveness, God tears down the walls that our sins have built, and he opens the way for a renewed relationship with him. This is exactly what we must do if we are to forgive as the Lord forgives us. We must release the person who has wronged us from the penalty of being separated from us. We must not hold wrongs against others and not think about the wrong. Therefore, forgiveness may be described as a decision to make, and they give four promises, and I'm going to give those to you in just a moment. So forgiveness is a promise, actually a series of promises, commitments. And we're going to see these again beginning on April 24th, week after Easter, when we begin in our second hour a series on resolving conflict. So I encourage you to mark that and be here for that. But forgiveness involves making these four promises. First of all, we promise not to dwell on another's sin. It's not in your outline, but if you care to jot it down. We promise, we commit not to dwell on it. I will not dwell on this incident. It may well come to mind, 
but I will not meditate on it. Second, I promise not to revisit another's sin. I will not bring this incident up again and use it against you. Some of you have heard me say, uh, tell the story about a couple that came for marriage counseling, not to me, but to another counselor. And, uh, the wife, in this case, went through uh, all the things that this uh, guy had done in his life, and the husband said to the counselor, she got historical. <laughs> uh, he says, you mean hysterical? He goes, no, historical. She remembered and wrote down every last thing I had ever, had ever done. But we promise when we forgive not to revisit another's sin. Thirdly, we promise not to speak another's sin. That is, we don't talk about it then to, to others. And fourthly, we promise not to maintain another's sin. That is, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. And Peacemaker says this, by making and keeping these promises, you can tear down the walls that stand between you and your offender. You can promise not to dwell or brood over the problem or to punish by holding the person at a distance. You clear the way for your relationship to develop unhindered by memories of past wrongs. This is exactly what God does for us and it's what he calls us to do for others. Now, in our remaining time, at least for part of our remaining time, I want to offer some practical suggestions with regard to how forgiveness plays itself out and answer some questions that arise with regard to the practical outworking of forgiveness. First, I recommend that you reserve the language of forgiveness for sins that are committed and that you apologize for accidents. Forgiveness is for sins. I'm sorry is for accidents. It's a way of preserving the seriousness of sin and its need for forgiveness. I say I'm sorry when I've accidentally done something to you. If I bump into you, I might say I'm sorry. If I spill something on you, I might say I'm sorry. That's an accident. I'm going to ask you to forgive me. I haven't sinned against you in that. But forgiveness is for sin issues. Now, when I say this, I do not mean, as I've been misunderstood to mean a couple of times over the years, because I've not clearly explained it. I do not mean that non-sin issues are unimportant, or they don't sometimes need to be addressed, but just rather in a different way. I recommend that if someone does or says something you don't like, but they've not sinned in it, then I recommend, friends, then seriously consider cutting them some slack. Seriously consider letting it go. None of us has to confront everything that we don't like. All of us need to learn to be more tolerant of others. And we all need that from each other. I need that from you. You need that from me. But I certainly grant that there are times where someone is doing something or you perceive that they're doing something and it's created a barrier between you. They may or may not be sinning. So if you can't, if it can't be let go, and it's affecting you in your relationship, by all means, get it cleared up. If not sin, then seek and accept an apology. And if it is sin, then seek and grant forgiveness. Now, there are questions that arise with regard to the outworking of seeking and granting forgiveness. Let's deal with some of those. One is, 
Who's responsible to pursue forgiveness? It is, the, is it the offender or the offended? Well, the Bible says that the offending party has a responsibility to initiate the process. In fact, you're in chapter 6 in your Bible. If you just turn a page to chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 23. If you're offering your gift at the altar, this is Jesus speaking, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, that is, you have sinned against someone. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So the offending party is to seek forgiveness. Now, if you've had someone sin against you, you're sitting here or you're watching, you may be feeling pretty good right now. After all, then it's her move. She sinned against me. Not so fast. Because in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus places the responsibility not on the offending party, but on the offended. Here's what he says. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. So how do you reconcile these? On the one hand, we have the responsibility of the offender to go and seek forgiveness. On the other, the responsibility is with the offended. So which is it? And the answer is it is both. In fact, the two should run into each other on the way to meet. Another question that arises is, can I forgive even when I'm not asked? Someone has sinned against me they won't accept responsibility for it. They've not been asked, can I forgive them? The answer is technically no. If forgiveness is to be granted and relationship restored, then it is preceded by confession. That's why 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 says of Christians in our familial relationship with our Father, when we sin, we want nothing to hinder our relationship with the Lord. We're His, we will be for eternity, but sin always affects our fellowship with our Father. And so if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to remember, to forgive us our sins. So confession precedes that. You say, well, I, feel I have to forgive the person in order for me to be able to move on with my life. Now that's a different thing. Your relationship can't be restored unless it's preceded by confession on the part of the offender. It needs to be sought and then, when sought, granted. But if they don't seek it and if they don't see the error of their way, you still have to deal with your own internal attitude toward those who sin against you lest it devolve into bitterness for you. Jesus showed this kind of forgiving spirit on the cross. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. A prayer that the Father not execute them summarily for the heinous deed of executing the Messiah. As we'll see in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter, when we get to chapter 7, Stephen displayed this forgiving spirit when he prayed just before he was martyred, Father, do not hold this sin against them. You can and must deal with your own internal attitude toward those who sin against you, whether they seek forgiveness or not, but if you're to be reconciled, that requires that they see the error of their way, and they confess, and they ask. Another question. Can you forgive when the individual does the same thing over and over. And some of you have already said, yeah, up to 490 times. Well, here's what I point out to you, because it's a real practical problem in relationships, is that 
people have habits. They do the, habitually then the same kinds of things. And then they ask forgiveness. And then the habit is that they do it again. And then they ask for forgiveness. And I make the distinction, and I think it's an important one, between being transactional and transformational. See, we can look at all this. You can write down everything I'm saying. And you say, okay, here's the procedure. And there's a transaction that we go through. So for every offense that I commit against you or you commit against me, we go through this routine. So will you forgive me? Yeah, I forgive you. Okay, we move on. Next day we do the same thing. We do the same thing. Here we go. And nothing actually gets resolved. I just keep doing the same stuff. See, God is not telling us to be transactional, to go through these transactions in a rote kind of manner, but rather these teachings about God's heart toward us and his forgiveness toward us and how we are to display the same kind of heart toward others is to have a transformational effect on us. So that, yes, I may still struggle with the same kinds of things, but I don't just go through the motions and say, forgive me, yes, you forgive me, okay, where are we going for dinner tonight? And move on. But rather, you recognize that that sin that you habitually keep committing is coming from a deeper place in your heart that needs to be transformed. It needs to have done what I talked about last week. When I talked about the need to have a new affection replace the old idols of our hearts, or two weeks ago, I preached on that. Transform internally. And if you have a habitual sin that you continually find yourself having to come and ask for forgiveness for, particularly to the same person, you need to express to that person that you recognize that this is a deeper thing. And by God's grace, you're looking to deal with the root of that thing, not just the symptoms of it. For it to be transformational then, forgiveness has to be accompanied by repentance. And just as forgiveness between parties should be preceded by confession, it should be succeeded by repentance. So I confess it to you, I ask you to forgive me, but now I'm implementing ways in order to have my heart shaped by better things. Not that I never do this again. I may do it often, but I express to you, by God's grace, I'm being changed. So we pray to be forgiving, and I say in your outline, we pray to be forgiven. This prayer in Matthew chapter 6 is a family prayer. This is a prayer that children of God pray to their father. Remember how it starts, pray like this, Jesus says, our father. So this is not the prayer of unbelievers to God. This is the prayer of people in God's family to him. This is then parental forgiveness that we're looking for. People already in relationship with God who are now looking for familial reconciliation because we've done something to harm our fellowship with God. So you should make a distinction as the Bible does between parental or familial forgiveness and judicial forgiveness. 
Judicial forgiveness is what you received when you first came to Christ. And God is the judge, and you outside of his family, condemned by God the righteous judge, come to receive the judicial forgiveness that he offers in Christ. And he forgives us all of our sins and all of the things that we've talked about. And now we're in his family, we begin to walk with him, but we want to please him. And every sin is a displeasure to God. And it affects our intimacy with God, and so we confess it in this familial, parental way. But bear in mind that if you're an unforgiving person, Jesus has been warning throughout that it may be an indication that you're not in the family of God. And therefore you are in need of that initial judicial forgiveness from God. And so I urge you, friends, to examine yourselves whether you be in the faith as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13. One author says that when we sin, we can respond a number of ways, and unfortunately, not all of them involve changing our ways. Now, all of them involve repentance, and he lists some of those. He says we can excuse our sin, especially by blaming others. If we get angry, then it's because someone provoked us. If we fail, it's because someone tempted us. We can even blame God for our sin. James had to deal with that in James chapter 1. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Or we can deny our sin, redefine our actions so they sound better. You see, the impenitent, the non-repentant, they never argue, they just get an animated discussion. They never shout, They just make their points emphatically. They don't steal, they just borrow indefinitely without telling the owner. If anyone points out the error, the person is judgmental. Or we can succumb to shame and run away, collapse in guilt and self-recrimination. We can give up because we decide that we're unable to change. We can resolve to try harder. We can stir ourselves to redouble our efforts until we collapse in failure and shame again. Or we can ask the Lord of mercy. Some wonder if God will forgive us when we commit the same sins over and over. Of course he will. Part of Jesus' model prayer. We pray this way daily. If we can ask for our bread daily, we can ask for forgiveness daily. Many of you know the Baptist preacher John Bunyan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote a poem that said this, "Run, run, Run, John, run, the law commands but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly, and it gives us wings. And many have encouraged that we think of those two wings of the gospel as two wings with six feathers, three on on each. This first wing is what Christ did for us before we were born. Before we were born, God loved you with a special saving love. Christ himself gave himself up as a sacrifice for you. And thirdly, God was satisfied with Christ's sacrifice. Your debt is paid. That second wing is what Christ has done for us during our lifetime. He brought you to faith. He put you in a saving relationship with Christ. He adopted you into his family as a child of his own, and he forgave all of your sins, and there is no condemnation. So run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and it gives us these wings. It bids us forgive. 
and gives us gospel wings. If you believe in your heart that God has done, friends, all of that for you and in you, then in turn you can fly in the Christian life, as it were. You will forgive. Christians are forgiven people. And therefore, they are forgiving people. And here's your take-home truth. We have a heart of forgiveness. We're going to pray. But all this means, we've all got business to do with God, all of us. It may be that you have come to realize, I'm not a child of God. I have never realized the forgiveness that Christ extends to me. I go to church, but I don't live as a forgiven person. Doesn't show up in my life, doesn't show up in my attitude, my interactions with others. So maybe the business you need to do now is to come to Christ and receive that forgiveness that he offers. And in turn, what internally is given to you will externally manifest itself from you. And then others of us have someone in our lives that we have struggled to forgive. And God is calling you to forgive. Approach them, if you have not already, about the sin. And seek to have them own it and confess and then readily grant forgiveness. If they won't own it, then you deal with your own internal attitude toward them. The Lord will take care of this. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And then there are others of us, maybe you have none of those things. But this is simply an opportunity now for us to thank God for the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. For the forgiveness that's been extended most importantly to us by Him and then to us by others and that we want to extend because we are His children to others as well. So let's do business with God. Those here, those watching on live stream, we're going to bow. And as we do, those of you who have never come to Christ, this is your opportunity to do that. You realize that you're a sinner. A message like this has shown you one manifestation of that sin and unforgiving attitude. Recognize that Christ died for that sin and every other. Repent. Lord, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to go your way, not mine. Ask Jesus to forgive you on the basis of what he did on the cross. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for the words of the Lord Jesus Christ that have been preserved for us to instruct us, to challenge us, to convict us. We thank you for the Sermon on the Mount and how profound it is and how it cuts me to the heart and it it reveals me and it reveals us lord jesus thank you for your words of seeking forgiveness first from the father always but then from others and a willingness and a ready willingness to grant it to others lord the relationship that we have with you or the lack of relationship that we have with you, or the quality or lack of quality relationship that we have with you has profound effects on the way we live. Of course, you know that, and you've instructed us in your word as to how to mend these things, and how we ought to pursue them. 
And so I pray, Lord, that as a result of looking at that now today, that those who know you have a resonant heart so that you have spoken to them from your word and they desire to rectify that which is wrong in their lives, that they have people from whom they are separated and they have never taken initiative to get it right. May they do that today in obedience to you. And as a result, may there be fertile ground that receives that entreaty and there's reconciliation. But Lord, we can't control what another party does. Your word says as much as it is possible, live at peace with everyone as much as it depends on you. We can only do what you've instructed us to do. And then for the other party, we leave into your faithful hands. May that happen today, this week. Lord, draw some then who don't know you to yourself. Cause others who do know you to get right things that they should have dealt with some time ago. And then, Lord, for everyone, everyone else who does know you, who loves you, in whose hearts you have been at work for many years, Lord, help us to be eternally thankful and to live accordingly and to interact with others in a way that is consistent with what you have done for us. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy to us. May we be people who show mercy to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.